This is Christy, and we have merchandise. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com and check out amazing t-shirts, mugs, stickers. If you love great quotes, we have some of our favorites. If you love silliness, check out our mascot, Brain Man. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com, clip on the shop button, and find something for that person who needs to be reminded that we are fashioned creatures but half made up. Mary Shelley said that. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. We proudly welcome artist Samantha Sherry as our sponsor on the How to Love Lit podcast. Sam is a world-class artist specializing in animal portraits. We invite you to check out her work at samanthasherry.com. Tell her Christian Gary sent you. Again, samanthasherry.com. Shriver. And I'm Gary Shriver, and this is the How to Love Lit Podcast. Today, we look at the middle sections of the narrative of the life of Frederick Douglass, an American slave. That's chapters 8, 9, and 10. And although it's just three chapters, it really is the centerfold of the entire book, especially chapter 10. If we define climax, as in the climax of a story in the Shakespearean sense, in the sense that it's the point in the story from which the protagonist cannot reverse himself. And I really like to look at climaxes like that. It's indeed in these middle chapters that we're going to see it, especially if you want to look at the story as a coming-of-age story, which is another nice way to look at this uh, book, or as the literary people like to say, buildings a romand. <laughs> oh, that sounds impressive. <laughs> it is. <laughs> And in a sense, that's a really good way of looking at this book. So, ready to jump in? Yes. Um, In week one, we looked at this book primarily from a historical perspective and focusing on the influence of Douglas on American thinking about abolition as well as other topics of the day. Last week, we looked at it primarily from also a rhetorical perspective and looked intently at the argument Douglas was making on how slavery deeply dehumanizes the slave, but also it dehumanizes the slave owner. And he was very emphatic in driving that point home. Yes, and that's where he's really going to start in these chapters. Uh, and, and in fact, that's really the primary reason for him writing the book at all. There is no doubt that Douglas's objective is to convince the world at the total depravity of a system it's so base and so vile that it cannot be redeemed in any way under any circumstances at all. That's the number one thought that you should have as you read the book. However, in chapters 8 through 10, Douglas is going to take us a bit on his internal journey from youth into manhood, or 
if you want to define it using his words, from slavery to freedom. In fact, at one point in chapter 10, he's going to say, My long-crushed spirit rose, cowardice departed, bold defiance took its place, and I now resolve that however long I could be enslaved, in fact, I did not hesitate to let it be known that the white man who expected to succeed in whipping me must also succeed in killing me. So if you look at that phrase, he's talking about your his spirit and the concepts of cowardice and boldness and defiance. And these are going to be the attitudes and the themes that we're going to see run through this section. And what's fascinating about it to me, he does uh, what's called, for lack of a better phrase, a cost-benefit analysis of his own life. Uh, is my life as a slave worth anything uh, is it is it worth dying uh, for to to make a move towards freedom? And the reason why I bring that up is when you're making those kinds of assessments, you're really thinking deep, abstract thoughts about the nature of man, about your own essence, about your own spot in the world, and what you are as a human. And um, I think that's fascinating that he was at that point. That's what makes him truly a unique mind. While he's still actually physically enslaved. It's also a good point to bring out that that's where you get into the universality of what he's discussing. Slavery, as it existed in the 1800s, in some ways exists in some parts of the world. But in many ways, we don't have that form of slavery, at least in our reality here in the United States. Having said that, that's not to say that there's not something to be understood by what he means from freedom to slavery, slavery mm-hmm. to freedom, in a very personal way that could apply to lots of people. Exactly. And we mentioned this in an earlier podcast, that the slavery that um, Frederick Douglass was a victim of was agriculturally based and labor intensive. You know, in, in our modern times, in our 21st century the slavery is very, very different. Uh, it's highly exploitative in a lot of parts of the world, and there's a lot of sex trafficking and things of that nature. But it still has the same universal effect, the same universal fallout, the same universal dehumanization on the part of the victims and the victimizers. What I find also interesting to kind of tag this on to his uh, determination, his spirit rising up in himself. It reminds me of uh, a great Julius Caesar quote. And that quote is, Cowards die many times before their deaths. The valiant never taste of death but once. I'd like to put a little bit of a modern twist on that. Uh, I would like to put a little psychological backbone into Julius Caesar writer and say, really, it's the dying many times that eventually causes people to be willing to be valiant. So we're going to see the psychology of how any one individual allows himself to be controlled by any other human, allows himself to view himself as lesser than any other human, and the moment that he wakes up to that, and he no longer becomes the same person. So Christy, take us back to the story. How does Douglas end up back on the slave plantation, and what's going to transpire in chapters 8, 9, and 10? All right, well, in chapter 7, when we left off, he had learned to read, he had uh, was living kind of this, for a slave, an improved life uh, for a while. And then, of course, Captain Anthony died. Now, Captain, Captain Anthony is the person who actually owns him. And it's a little fuzzy to me 
how all these follow all the, the yeah, living, yeah these slaves get pushed moved around and sent to live with relatives or kinfolks and I don't know if they were rented out if they were given out or whatever but uh, when Camp Captain Anthony died they had to collect all these people and stuff that had been scattered around the livestock the, the furniture the slaves everything it, it all had to be inventoried and given a value yes and at this point you see him really having to stare his own inhumanity in the face in a way that he had not had to do when he was on the slave the on the plantation the first time mm-hmm. because when he was on the plantation the first time he considered himself as an animal if you remember Right before he left, he had to scrub off all that gross, dead skin. Yes, all over his body. And he didn't even like doing it. So now he's gone off, almost some sense found out what it means to be a bit of an individual. And then he comes back, and he's going to be ranked with the horses and the sheep and the swine. And, of course, they know that he's been, I guess, this uppity slave, if you want to think about it. Uh, and Master Andrew, who's in charge here, beats up his baby brother just to prove to him that this is going to be your lot when I get a hold of you. So it's very debasing. It's very uh, uh, frightening to some to some sense because you have zero control of your destiny. And what I find interesting, too, uh, it says here, in addition to the pain of separation, there was the horrid dread of falling into the hands of Master Andrew He was known to us all as being a most cruel wretch, a common drunkard. I find that very interesting, you know, that we have this guy descending into alcoholism. There's a couple of them that descend into alcoholism uh, throughout the court. They have nothing to do, so they just sit around and drink and then beat up people. Well, and there's also the whole idea, too, my point for bringing it up, is that when you live in the cognitive dissonance of dehumanizing people, there are moments there are moments of reckoning inside yourself and uh, you don't know how to resolve them and becoming an alcoholic would have been a common response so the suggestion you're making is it's because that they have people under them that they're dehumanizing that's driving them to alcoholism that's interesting all right it's not uncommon (laughs) well and i do want to point out if you're ever wanting to make a good case or show how something is bad he is really good at this so so what he does is he says master andrew is mean he's cruel and those are abstract words but then he's going to put it juxtapose it with this really horrible uh, expression of what that looks like when he says he took my brother by the throat my little brother by the throat threw him on the ground and with the heel of his boot stamped upon his head until blood gushed from his nose and ears it was well calculated to make me anxious as to my fate so you see these vivid illustrations of what he means when he throws out these abstract terms so fortunately though he get the dice rolls in his favor and he doesn't go to andrew he goes to lucretia which is the better one to go to and, and so he drops his discussion about that because he's not going to have to stay on the plantation anymore. He's heading back to, back to um, Baltimore. But he ends this discussion with a discussion about his grandmother. Right, which is very interesting because uh, when they're dividing up the estate and selling it off, Frederick Douglass's grandmother had been with the family for who knows how many decades and had raised old family children and had raised their grandchildren and she had also had several children herself and 
in in his mind, I guess if anybody had ever been seen as contributing to the welfare of that family and that plantation, it was his grandmother. And should have been let free. And she should have been freed uh, in his will uh, upon his passing, and he wasn't. And he regarded that as just the, the deepest, most ungrateful, inhumane treatment. Well, he talks about it for two pages, and he says this, to cap the climax of their base ingratitude in fiendish barbarity, my grandmother, who is now very old, having outlived my master, my old master and all his children, having seen the beginning and end of all of them, and her present owners, finding that she was of but little value. Look how long the sentence is. Her frame already racked with the pains of old age and complete helplessness, fast stealing over her once active looms. They took her to the woods, built her a little hut, put her up a little mud chimney, and then made her welcome to the privilege of supporting herself there in perfect loneliness, thus virtually turning her out to die. There's a periodic sentence if you've ever seen one. Right. Wow. What a, what a great uh, dissertation on that thought. But we have to add a little addendum to that. Okay. H- historically. What's interesting um, is that Douglas is going to meet up again with Mr. Ald. And it's going to be in 1877, which is roughly a little over 30 years after this book is published. So he's in his late 50s, 60s, something like that. Douglas is. Yeah. yeah. Mr. Ald's in Much his older. 80s. Oh, okay. Okay, so he's a he's a frail old man himself. And they have opportunity to meet and, and get together. And it's a very interesting um, uh, meeting that they have. They both end up in tears over their experiences together and... And uh, Douglas comes away from it with the idea that it was neither one of our faults. It was our fate, not our fault, that we ended up together in those circumstances. And so he was f- feeling merciful. So the gist of their discussion or a major important point they make during this discussion is Frederick Douglass sort of repents for putting the story about the grandmother in there. Because in reality, Mr. Ald had not been cruel in that way so he had taken her out he had taken her out in the end douglas made a special effort to make peace with ald well and it's nice that even though he had slammed them in the book he was man enough later on in life to recognize oh you were nice to my grandmother and i'm gonna reverse i guess that's what happens when you write a book in real time and the actors are still alive he realized he had misrepresented something, and he corrected it before the end of his life. So, Right, and one says it was important enough to Douglas to correct it that he was willing to be accused of having gone soft on slavery. Right, and had been willing to be accused of being a liar in his book if you were going to be on the side that doesn't like him. So right. he corrected all that out, and it's just kind of a thing. When you write in real time, it happens. Correct, true. All right, well, let's shut the door on Chapter 8, and let's get into Chapter 9, which is another... He's going to turn a different direction in Chapter 9, and he really focuses on these different masters that uh, he's going to end up uh, having to deal with. And one of the things I would say the most important idea of this whole chapter is this concept of religion. Now, we've already established that Douglas himself considers himself to some degree a person of faith, and yet his description of religion in the South is very much not in line with his own personal discussion of what God has done to redeem him out of slavery. Right, which is the the interesting religious tension that he has. 
he's going to give a great description of the fraudulent faith of the the Christian slave owners and how horrible their treatment is. But at the same time, he's always admitting that he was an inexplicable recipient of providence. Things happened for him to be able to get out of slavery that didn't happen for other people. So he's always in that tension of what to do with a faith that produced that kind of horrible slave treatment, but also produced this glorious providence that got him out. And again, he does that same strategy. He he says this person, he says this, uh, my master found religious sanction for his cruelty. And then he's going to give an example. He's going to say, for example, the secret of the master's cruelty toward Henny is found in the fact of her being almost helpless. When quite a child, she fell into the fire and burned herself horribly. Her hands were so burnt that she never got any use of them. So he would just beat the stew out of the lame girl while quoting scripture, saying, He that knowest his master's will and doeth it not shall be beaten with many stripes, taking, of course, out of context, a reference in the Bible to Luke twelve forty seven. I want to say this. I think it's even beyond hypocrisy, though. As I mentioned in an, an earlier podcast, you have a very specific type of sociopathic personality that gets attracted to being overseers and, and slave breakers. These are people who would have enjoyed beating all kinds of people. Well, I mentioned last week that there was an appendix where he really discusses uh, his views on religion in depth. And there is a lot that he does say about that. But one thing that I think is, uh, I don't know if it's funny, if that's the right word, but there was a very famous song at the time that people were singing in churches in the South called Heavenly Union. So the song is called Heavenly Union, and these are the words of the song. Come saints and sinners, hear me tell the wonders of Emmanuel, who saved me from a burning hell and brought my soul with Christ to dwell and gave me heavenly union. When Jesus saw me from on high, beheld my soul in ruin lie, he looked on me with pitying eye and said to me as he passed by, with God you have no union. So he takes this song that they were singing in church about the mercy of God, saving people from hell, Jesus having pity, and he writes these words. New lyrics. New lyrics. <laughs> Come saint and sinner, hear me tell how pious priests whip Jack and Nell, and women buy and children sell and preach all sinners down to hell and sing of heavenly union. They'll beat and bod, donna like goats, gorge down black sheep and stain at moats, array their backs in fine black coats, then seize their negroes by their throats and choke for heavenly union. They'll church you if you sip a dram and damn you if you steal a lamb, yet rob old Tony Dolan Sam of human rights and bread and ham, kidnappers, heavenly union. They'll loudly talk of Christ's reward and bind his image with a cord and scold and swing the lash abhorred and sell their brothers in the Lord to handcuffed heavenly union. So he goes on and on. There's many more, like Several 12 verses. more verses. He was inspired. Oh, yeah, of identifying one thing after another that these people were guilty of in terms of contradicting their words with their actions in regard to their faith. Indeed. And why would he labor at this point? I think that's a, that's a very important point to make. Because who is he writing to in this book primarily? 
northern white people. Yes, and uh, a lot of the abolitionist societies were operated by churches. And so he's really drawing out this whole idea to you who are religious in the north, this is what religion looks like in the south. And so if you were a northern abolitionist in a church, you would look at that and go, oh my gosh, that's full of heresy and full of contradictions and full of offense. And it's just, it's everything antithetical to what I believe in my faith. And there's a lot of shock value in that. I guess so, because you're not only now offended for the poor black slaves, you're offended for the justice in the name of God in which they're enabling these kinds of evil behaviors. Indeed. And I will say back to your point, it does kind of show that when you get something like total power over another person, it corrupts even your soul down to your relationship with God himself cannot be redeemed in that kinds of those kinds of behaviors. And you know what? We're talking at it talking about that kind of thing on a grand moral scale of slavery. But individuals do it on much smaller scales. People who are manipulative and controlling pay the cost for it. They suffer the consequences for it in their own internal selves. Chapter 10 is really the most pivotal point in this entire book. In fact, this particular discussion with what happens to him and with Mr. Covey in Chapter 10 is in all of his books. It's really the center point of his entire life. So, and it's long. Chapter 10 is It is, very of all long. the chapters. <laughs> and he's going to go into detail. And so what happens is, because he's not really suited to farm life, he probably wouldn't have been suited to farm life if he were just moving out into the country, but he's certainly not suited to slave life. He can't get his work done. He's not, he's not physically able. He's not mentally able. And he's... Re- rebellious to some degree in his own mind. Captain Ald, well, um, Mr. Ald, not Captain Ald, Mr. Ald can't control him. So he sends him to this guy who has a reputation of being able to break these kinds of slaves. So Mr. Covey has a contract to own Douglas for one year. And over the course of this year, he is going to try to break down his spirit, really take away his manhood in a way that uh, he hadn't been able to do back home. So he starts off the chapter with an incident just to kind of set up the stage for how crazy and maybe psychopathic, as you're saying, Mr. Covey is. Mr. Covey gives him an unbroken group of oxen and sends him on this task, which of course he can't do. He upsets the cart. It gets dashed against a tree. They have chaos and, of course, when he goes back and has to tell this to Mr. Covey, he gets the stew beat out of him. He says he's met with a fierceness of a tiger. And for the first six months that he's there, he just gets beating after beating after beating after beating. But uh, at one point, this is going to stop. What's interesting is that uh, he does to Mr. Covey what he does to every other slave owner or master that he's in the presence of. He gives us a synopsis of their core person. (laughs) And he says this about Mr. Covey. Uh, He said he was sneaky and a terrorist. And he said Mr. Covey's forte consisted in his power to deceive. His life was devoted to planning and perpetrating the grossest deceptions. So this guy enjoys this kind of uh, narcissistic game of always getting one up on people. 
That's true. And it's nice uh, that he contrasts this uh, with this beautiful apostrophe that we're going to see here in the beginning of this chapter. And this piece of little poetry has been pulled out and recited, and it's kind of a famous little thing. And what happens is an apostrophe, by the way, that's a literary term. It's not a punctuation mark. Uh, It's when you talk to something that cannot talk to you back. So like if you're talking to someone who's not here, hey, mom, and mom's not in the room, that's an apostrophe. But you can also talk to something else, an innate object. Like, dang, phone, why do you keep messing up? People do it all the time. So when you talk to something that can't talk back, that's an apostrophe. Well, what he does is he goes and he's going to look over the Chesapeake Bay at all these boats, these white sails, beautiful vessels that are going away and he juxtaposes or he he contrasts his life in in this slave state with these boats that seem like they have endless um, endless freedom and he's going to say you are loosed from your moorings and are free i am fast in my chains and am a slave you move merrily through the gentle gale i sadly before the bloody whip you are freedom, swing weed angels, and fly around the world. I am confined in bands of iron. Oh, that I were free. Oh, that I were on one of your gallant decks and under your protecting wings. Alas, betwixt me and you the turbid waters roll. Go on, go on. Oh, that I could also go. Could I but swim, if I could fly. Oh, why was I born a man of whom to make a brute? The glad ship is gone. She hides in the dim distance, and I am left in the hottest hell of unending slavery. Oh, God, save me. God, deliver me. And, of course, he's going to go on. It's a little bit longer than that. But you get the idea, this groaning of his soul as he labors under Covey and basically feels himself losing his humanity. Indeed. And basically, that's Covey's whole job. He He's titled a slave breaker and it's his job to, to to rob you of all independent will and he's feeling the weight of that for the first six months that he's there but, but then but then things are going to change and then we're going to have one of my absolute favorite quotes of the book appear and i have to make a comment about it um he goes on to say i have already intimated that my condition was much worse during the first six months of my stay at Mr. Covey's than in the last six. The circumstances leading to the change in Mr. Covey's course toward me form an epic in my humble history. And here's the classic line. You have seen how a man was made a slave. You shall see how a slave was made a man. I love that quote. And I love it for a couple of reasons. Um, I love it because whenever somebody is in an abusive situation, they go through a Frederick Douglass-style transition. They go through this metamorphosis and this epic that he does, and they come to this awareness, I have been this, now I'm going to transition to being that. And when those people find that bravery inside of them, then they get free of, of their abuse. And it's exactly the transition that Douglas is going through. Yes, and he goes back to the house, and we're going to see he's sick, and he's being made to work, and he can't work anymore, so he goes in and he lays down. Uh, Covey realizes that the work has stopped. He's nearby, and he listens, and the sounds have stopped, and he goes in to see him, 
and he just beats the stew out of him. He beats him and he beats him and he beats him to the point where Douglas says, I'm going to run away. And he goes seven miles back to his old master and he begs him, please help me, please help me. And he, he says, you sh- I looked horrible. I had an appearance in the, to affect any but a heart of iron from the crown of my feet to my head. I was covered with blood. My hair was all clotted with dust and blood. My shirt was stiff with blood. My legs and feet were torn in sundry places. And, of course, um, Master Thomas looks at him and actually, I think, really looks like he considers keeping them, but realizes, no, i got to send them back. I'll be out a bunch of money. So he makes him go back. He does. And so now he and Mr. Covey are going to have the showdown that will change everything in the course of the book. And um, it's going to occur uh, in unusual circumstances. It does, because you have this little interesting anecdote with Sandy Jenkins. And he kind of enters in with this African mysticism. So he goes and he's walking back and he's hiding basically from Covey in corn. And he runs away, uh, again, knowing that eventually he's going to have to go back. Uh, And this guy named Sandy Jenkins, who has a wife who's uh, free, says, listen, you got to give, I'm going to give you my root. And he gives him a root and he says, if you will carry it always on your right side, it will be impossible for Mr. Covey or any other white man to whip you. I've been carrying it for years and no one has whipped me since. Well, of course, this is completely unscientific. um, But he realizes, well, there's no reason not to give it a go. And so... He takes it. What do you make of all this? Uh, I don't know what to make of all that. Uh, but uh, it's interesting that, that Douglas himself is hesitant because uh, keep in mind, you have to be amazed that Douglas the slave has actually a scientific mind. And so out of that scientific mind that he has used to deduce and analyze all the people around him, he is scientifically skeptical that a root is going to protect him. So he goes back, and of course Sunday, he's Cubby's really nice to him. He goes, well, it's Sunday. He's not going to beat me on a Sunday because they do have that moral standard. <laughs> oh, at least. Well, thank goodness. <laughs> so he, we're going to see. I'm going to test the resolve of the root on Monday when surely things are going to... Uh, going to heat up and of course they do they basically fight for nearly two battles and he says two hours i'm sorry two hours you're right this battle with mr covey was the turning point in my career as a slave and i find this to be the most this is the part from which there's no return he fights covey i don't know that i've ever read another slave narrative where a, a slave fights his master and then wins he says it rekindled the few expiring embers of freedom and revived within me a sense of my own manhood. In other words, I'm not a beast. I remember I am a person. And he calls it, and this is the biblical language, a glorious resurrection from the tomb of slavery to the heaven of freedom. My long-crushed spirit rose, cowardice departed, Bold defiance took in its place, and I was now resolved, however long I might remain a slave in form, and here's the line, mm-hmm. the day had passed forever when I could be a slave in fact. I did not hesitate to let it be known of me that the white man who expected to succeed in whipping must also succeed in killing me. And we see here this definition of what it means to be human. 
And I don't know that I understand all of what that means, but in some sense, I feel like that's where we get into this universal nature of what can appeal about this book in a modern sense. Because there is a way in which you can feel like you've been made to feel lesser than a human. What is it that someone has done to you that has taken away your humanity? That I don't know, but what can you do to make yourself feel more human Douglas has a statement about that, and it's stand up. Right. And Douglas basically, to use modern-day terminology, found agency. Yes. He, he, was, he found efficacy. Um, he also drew a boundary inside of himself where he clearly defined life beyond this line is not worth living. I will not go beyond that line anymore. As a matter of fact, dying is more valuable to me than living life on the other side of this line. And that is something that all... Uh, victimized people have to do. They have to draw those lines and they have to have the agency and the efficacy and and the will to determine we're pushing back. Well, and this is where he's been met with a lot of modern controversy because people have noticed, obviously it's going to be fairly obvious from here to the end of the book, there's several incidences of violence, physical violence. So he's finding to some sense his manhood and it's expressing itself in a physical fight so you want it you came after me i'm gonna hit you and in some sense and for us modern people this physical representation of manhood is really it's not well received anymore and maybe it wasn't well received then but it's an expression of standing up and it's a physical expression and i don't know how else you could do it in those conditions interestingly enough before he has this confrontation in this two-hour fight with covey he makes an assessment of Covey's character in which he says Covey is basically a coward. And so when I have this fight in a barn, uh, this is one-on-one without an audience and it's without the trappings of uh, the support of slave culture or white slave-owning culture. It was just as personal as it could personally be between the two of them. And that had a profound impact on Covey as well as on Frederick Douglass. Well, and it's kind of like Curly from Of Mice and Men because he figures out later, or at least he thinks about later, he didn't want to tell anybody he got whipped by a slave because then he'd have to tell people he got whipped by a slave. (laughs) And Frederick Douglass said this that wasn't even a satisfactory explanation, but the only explanation for how Covey changed towards him was the fact that Covey had a reputation as a slave breaker. Here was obviously a slave that he did not break, that he failed at, and apparently Covey's reaction to that is, well, I'm just not going to tell anybody that I failed. (laughs) We're going to sweep the whole thing on the rug, and I'll keep my reputation intact. But Covey knew he had been bested, and from that point on, there's a dynamic change. And really, Covey gave him the greatest gift of his life. Covey, ironically, is the man that Douglas credits for making him a man, and he's never going to change. He's going to leave there, Mr. Covey, and he's going to go to William Freeland, which is kind of a nice name because this man is really nice. He makes the point that Mr. Freeland was not a religious man, and so therefore was a nice slave owner if one could be had. Of course, a nice slave owner is a bit of an oxymoron. Well, it's all, it's, it's all comparative. <laughs> it is all comparative. But he had two other slaves, and they become really close friends. In fact, this is the first time in the book that you see him really talking about impassioned relationships, mm-hmm. brotherhoods. And so in the sense... That he's been injected with humanity in his own mind, he's now been empowered to have deeper relationships with other people. Right, because the very book, uh, he starts off describing his isolation 
Right. And his lack of relationships. And now, and now here he is at this Entering point. into community. And he's giving back this idea of the Sabbath schools. And he starts, uh, and, and it's all in the name of Christianity, too, to some degree. He's helping. At one time, he had over 40 scholars that he's teaching to read and write. Their minds had been starved. They had been shut up in mental darkness. I taught them because it was the delight of my heart. So, Mr. Freeland's the Freeland experience is quite a positive experience, and yet it's from Mr. Freeland's farm that he really gets the the first impetus to really try to run away. Right, because he notices the more tidbits of freedom that he experiences, the more dissatisfied he becomes with slavery, and, and it's irreconcilable for him. Right. So it goes poorly for the most part because somebody snitched on him <laughs> and he has a, yeah, they have a scuffle and basically he gets away with it because he got rid of his past, but he has to leave Mr. Freeland's farm. Which is where things will take a significant turn towards freedom for him because he's going to be sent to... Back to Baltimore. Back to Baltimore, which on other occasions has been really good to him. And I notice if you want to see the hand of Providence, there's no explanation. Why wasn't he sold to the Georgia slave traders who was expected mm-hmm. to go down to Alabama? But some inexplicable reason, you know, Providence has intervened. And after an absence of three years and one month, he's back at Master Hugh Ald's house, who, of course, is the nicer of the Ald brothers, mm-hmm. and 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 he gives him a job. He gives him a trade. Yeah, and he begins to lease him out basically to work in the shipyards, building uh, boats and ships and things of that nature. And he learns a skill of how to caulk and build ships and things of that nature. And he begins to earn money for for Master Ald. And so, in in a real sense. He's the most free that he has ever been. And he learns the value, that his time has value, that his time is worth money. But at the end of the chapter, and this is, I guess, where we're in for the day, he says this. And this is exactly what you just said, but I'm just going to put it in his words. I have observed this in my experience of slavery, that whenever my condition was improved, instead of its increasing my contentment, it only increased my desire to be free and set me to thinking of plans to gave to gain my freedom. I have found that to make a contented slave, it is necessary to make him a thoughtless one. It is necessary to darken his moral and mental vision as far as possible to annihilate the power of reason, which of course is the exact same thing that Ray Bradbury said is how you make a slave even in a modern era. Get him to stop thinking and you have a slave. And Ray Bradbury is considered a science fiction writer. (laughs) And yet he's employing this whole idea that was uh, innate to 19th century slavery in the United States. You want to see how a slave can become a man and how a man can become a slave? Just reverse the process. Right. So we're going to leave off today with this whole idea. Now he has come to the point where he's tasted enough freedom that he wants the whole thing. And we're going to see how that transition is going to occur. So a lot went on in this chapter. Uh, There's a lot of psychology. There's a lot of philosophy. There is a lot of analysis that occurred. And even though we're going along with the narrative as time goes on. So um, thanks for joining us today. Uh, As always, we invite you to be our friend. Uh, 
follow us on our Facebook page. Follow us on our Instagram page. Also, we always encourage you to go to howtolovelitpodcast.com. That's where we have uh, teaching resources. Christy always puts together great lesson plans and uh, things that you can use in your classroom as you follow along with these discussions. We hope you have enjoyed being with us today. Come back next time. Peace out. on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.